Please, friends, be seated. A friend of mine who grew up in Central America told me a story about an Anglican church in her home country that received an unusual visitor one day. The priest was standing at the altar presiding over communion when a commotion in the pews drew his attention to a strange scene. His congregation was diving out the windows of the church. Looking around for the cause of the disturbance, the priest was shocked to see a boa constrictor winding its way up the center aisle, headed for the altar. As the snake slithered closer, the priest did the only thing he could think of. He raised his hand and blessed the creature. As he did so, the snake stopped moving, paused for a moment, then turned around and glided back down the aisle and out the door. Blessing a snake? A snake in church? It all seems so incongruous. Now it's true that various cultures revere snakes as symbols of the divine power of life and death, and also of the human potential for transformation and growth. And it's also true that Central American boa constrictors are relatively small and non-aggressive. But mainstream Christian imagery associates snakes not only with the potential harm they may cause us, but also and most deeply with original sin. Book of Genesis says that a serpent tempted Eve and in return, its descendants were condemned to slither on their bellies forever. Our siblings in Christ who handle poisonous snakes in worship services do that not out of any love for the snakes themselves, but rather to show that the Holy Spirit is Lord over these creatures. Snakes are awesome creatures, often frightening, always fascinating. Almost any other creature could have intruded into the Eucharist without sowing such panic into the hearts of the congregation. Some things, some images are so heavily loaded with meaning that we can't contemplate them without having a visceral reaction. Snake is one of those words. Saint is another. When you think of a saint, what image comes to mind? A pious woman, hands folded in prayer, eyes lifted toward heaven, feet barely touching the ground? Or maybe a heroic man who wrestles demons and slays dragons that I would be tempted to flee? Someone who never overindulges in anything? Who just knows the rest of us are up to no good? The opposite of a sinner? which is to say the opposite of you and me. As long as the church has been around, its members have struggled to define what makes a saint. Although churches in general share a concept of the communion of saints, the broadly inclusive Christian family, we typically mean slightly different things by the word saint. The Roman Catholic Church especially honors persons of what it calls heroic virtue, 
whose lives of service make them particular friends of God. To be canonized, a candidate for sainthood has to perform two miracles after their death. And usually that miracle takes the form of a healing for which there is no medical explanation. Protestants have a different understanding of sainthood. Most accept the teaching of Martin Luther, who argued that a saint is nothing more nor less than a believer in Jesus Christ. As is often the case, Anglicans take a middle path. <laughs> like most Christians, we agree with Luther that all the baptized form a communion of saints united in Christ across time and space. But like our Catholic friends, we honor individual saints too. Anglicans celebrate St. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the apostles, Mary Magdalene, and a few others on major feast days and a host of other blessed people on minor feasts. The introduction to our calendar of saints' days, lesser feasts, and fasts reminds us that saints are real human beings with strengths and weaknesses. The introduction says, in the saints we are not dealing primarily with absolutes of perfection, but human lives in all their diversity open to the motions of the Holy Spirit. Not perfect, open to the motions of the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a pretty good description of any Christian, which means the path to sainthood is open to all of us. Our gospel reading today gives us an outline of what the life of discipleship, the life of everyday sainthood looks like. Jesus begins by affirming God's love for his children in trouble. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the downhearted. Blessed are those who are criticized or ostracized for heeding the gospel call to stand with their suffering siblings. And from those blessings, Jesus moves on to a series of warnings. Woe to those who have enough to eat, who laugh, whose acquaintances speak well of them. If Jesus had stopped preaching there, he might have left us with the impression that his good news was only for the poor, the mournful, and the hungry, while the rich, the happy, and the well-fed were doomed. But he goes on. He addresses his next words to you that listen, to anyone who will open their ears to Jesus' word and then, by the grace of God, start to respond. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Is there any possible way any of us could live that way on our own? I don't think so. When we hear these words from Jesus, it's important to remember that he was talking to his disciples as a group. His you here is y'all. 
like Jesus's original disciples, you and I need Christian community to discern the most faithful path possible in any situation and then to follow that path. Working for peace can mean forgiving someone who has hurt you. In situations where we've been abused, seeking Christ's peace might mean establishing healthy boundaries, like maybe never seeing the abuser again, while also finding help to heal. And in situations where we're the one who's done wrong, seeking Christ's peace may mean accepting the consequences of our behavior and finding help not to sin in the same ways again. You and I don't live in a perfect world any more than Jesus and his disciples did. But in this sermon, Jesus tells us what a consecrated life looks like in the midst of God's imperfect world, in the midst of other sinners who are also trying to live faithfully. Jesus doesn't set his friends up for failure. He knows perfectly well he's talking to a group of sinners. After all, he's talking to human beings. But he challenges his disciples to develop habits of nonviolence, patience, and generosity to such an extent that it will be clear to everyone who meets them that the Holy Spirit must be moving within them. Giving to everyone who asks, or at the very least, repenting when we don't. Taking the gifts God has given us and offering them for the good of our community and the world. Respecting ourselves without seeking revenge for wrongs done to us. Praying God's blessing upon all God's people. All God's people. Not pretending that everyone has an equal chance in this world and offering support to neighbors whose chances are snatched away and asking for God's help to do all of this. Jesus asks these things of us, and through baptism, the Eucharist, prayer, and our human relationships, the Holy Spirit equips us to do them. Responding to the motions of the Spirit means continually making the choices and decisions that add up to a sanctified life. Even when you and I do heed the Spirit's call, we don't stop being sinners. The line between saint and sinner, wheat and chaff, sheep and goat, to borrow images from Jesus' stories, that line runs right down the middle of each of us. But our everyday choices and decisions move the line, tilt the balance one way or the other. As sanctified sinners, you and I have more in common with the snake who slithered up to the altar in that Central American church than we might think. The, theologically speaking, the serpent's history is intimately bound up with humanities. Genesis says that we were evicted from Eden together, and we both have to make our way as best we can in this world where one creature's survival means the death of another. 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims that the eviction from Eden, the end of innocence, is only the beginning of a new life grounded in God's love. The priest who watched the snake slither toward him in the Eucharist knew that when he raised his hand not to strike, but to bless. His blessing transformed a threatening presence into a fellow creature of God and turned an ordinary Christian into a vehicle of divine grace, a saint. May God's word and presence moving in this place and leading us out into the world do the same for each of us.